This is EM Cases, EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we've got the first of a brand new quick hit series on geriatric emergencies with Dr. Christina Shenvey, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Chapel Hill in North Carolina, where she's the Director of the Office of Academic Excellence and President of the Association for Professional Women in Medical Sciences. She did a fellowship in geriatric EM, and she's got a fantastic podcast dedicated to geriatric emergency medicine since 2015 called GEMCAST. G-E-M-C-A-S-T. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. She's going to talk to us about how not to miss ACS in older patients. When we think about older patients with ACS, the difficulty in diagnosing comes from the fact that they often present with what I'll put in scare quotes here as atypical symptoms. Now, let's think a little bit about where this idea of typical and atypical comes from. We refer to typical ACS symptoms as that crushing substernal chest pain radiating to the shoulder with diaphoresis and shortness of breath. And then when a patient comes in feeling more fatigued, feeling weak and dizzy, or just feeling more short of breath going up the stairs, we call that atypical. However, that comes more from our definitions and assumptions than it does from how patients actually present. So why do patients who are older break these quote-unquote rules? Well, it has to do with how they were defined. And in fact, you can look back to the 1700s where quote, typical ischemic symptoms were described. And they were described as a painful sensation in the breast accompanied by a strangling sensation, anxiety, and occasional radiation of pain to the left arm, often worse with exertion and relieved by rest. But guess what? Those typical symptoms were not described in populations who were elderly and often not described in women. And through the years, Elderly patients have often been excluded from trials, and many of the classic trials, I'm thinking about Framingham and others, were primarily performed in more middle-aged men. So often, when we say patients have atypical symptoms, that's more because of how we define them than how they present. Actually, older patients are those who tend to have MIs. If you look at who is having MIs or who is dying from an MI, 65% of STEMIs are in older patients, and 80% of the deaths from MIs occur in older patients. So really, older patients should be more of the, quote, rule than the exception. The trouble is, when we only work up or are more aggressive in patients who have, quote, typical presentations, that results in delayed time to assessment delayed EKGs, ultimately delayed diagnosis, and often delayed or less aggressive management. They don't get that door-to-PCI time as quickly, or that door-to-EKG time, or door-to-thrombolytics time. And ultimately, that leads to worse outcomes. So the first step in not missing ACS in older patients is to really examine our own assumptions. 
and say, why am I thinking that ACS must present with this crushing substernal chest pain or this strangulation of the breast? Really, it can present with a lot of different things. So how does it present? Well, presentations without chest pain are actually quite common. In a study of about 430,000 patients, a third with a confirmed MI had no chest pain on presentation. A third. These patients tended to be older, female, diabetic. So patients who fall into this elderly category, specifically women with diabetes, tend to have less chest pain with their MIs. And if you look at how the lack of chest pain changes with age, Patients who have an NSTEMI who are under 65, okay, so NSTEMI under 65, only about 22 or 23% do not have chest pain as their chief complaint. As you get to the older old patients, if you look at the over 84 group, so 85 and over, about 60% of them do not have chest pain as their chief complaint. So their chief complaint may be nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, which often means they're triaged and put on this conveyor belt of, okay, we're going down the belly labs pathway if you're nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain versus the chest pain pathway and you're getting an EKG within the first 10 minutes. The same trend is true of patients who present with a STEMI. Those who are coming in with a STEMI under age 65, about 10% of them do not have chest pain as their chief complaint. So the vast majority of them are coming in with chest pain. But then if you look at that 85 and over category, a little over 40% do not have chest pain as their chief complaint. So what do they present with? Well, far and away, the most common presentation of those who do not have chest pain, so chest pain is still very common, but of those who do not have chest pain, the most common chief complaint is dyspnea. After that, diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, and syncope. Why this occurs, so why older patients don't present with chest pain as often, there are as many theories out there as there are people who are theorizing about it. It may have to do with the levels of endogenous opioids. It may have to do with neuropathy, especially as we talk about patients with diabetes often have neuropathy, um, leading to impaired pain sensation. There also may be what's called ischemic preconditioning, which is a term that refers to this phenomenon that can occur where as you have small ischemic events, that may make you less likely to notice these other events. You may also have more multi-vessel disease and develop collateral flow. So if you're having small ischemic events over time, and if you have slow buildup of plaque, then you have time for more collateral flow to develop. Also, there may be more underlying lung disease and reduced pulmonary reserve. So where a younger person may be able to compensate from a pulmonary standpoint, an older patient who has COPD or CHF or other conditions affecting their breathing in a chronic nature, then they may not be able to compensate from a pulmonary standpoint. So they may present with dyspnea more frequently. So how can we not miss ACS in older patients? Well, first, examine our assumptions, understand that the atypical quote really doesn't exist, that really we should redefine it in a different way. Second, understand how older patients present. And then third, think about our diagnosis and management. EKGs are more often delayed in patients who have uh, atypical quote presentations. Also, EKG interpretation can be more complicated in older patients. They're more likely to have a pacer, to have ectopy, to have bundle branch blocks, 
left ventricular hypertrophy, dysrhythmias or AFib, as well as pre-existing Q waves. So you have to be good at diagnosing ACS in patients who have underlying abnormal EKGs. But the first step is really to be more aggressive with getting that EKG. We know that patients who have chest pain, about 87% of them get a pre-hospital EKG. And then 67% who need it go on to have PCI or fibrinolysis. Whereas those who don't have chest pain, only 72% got a pre-hospital EKG. And then only 37% of them ended up getting PCI or fibrinolysis when they were eligible. And yes, this could be a marker. This could be association versus causation. But at least being aggressive with the portion that we control, which is getting that EKG and doing the workup, getting your cardiac markers. Patients without chest pain are actually also less likely to receive aspirin in the first 24 hours and less likely to receive statins or beta blockers on discharge. This matters because it can also lead to worse outcomes. In patients who present with ACS with chest pain, there's about a 13% mortality in men and 7% mortality in women, whereas those without chest pain had a higher mortality, 21% mortality in women and 22% in men. So mortality is higher if they do not have chest pain, and we can help counteract that by getting an EKG and doing the workup earlier. So our final steps are really to reframe what we think of as typical and atypical and make sure that we can recognize the diverse array of symptoms that can present as ACS, especially in our older patients and women. Now, can you predict a STEMI? Are there ways that we can say, okay, this is what we need to do and this is the population of patients that need an EKG? Well, there was actually a study of about 3.5 million ED visits and they looked at predictive criteria and said, who needs to get an EKG? And they said, well, anyone over 30 years of age with chest pain should get an EKG. And then anyone over 50 who has chest pain or has shortness of breath, altered mental status, upper extremity pain, syncope, or generalized weakness. And then for the over 80 group, all of those criteria plus anyone with abdominal pain or nausea or vomiting. And using these criteria for who needs an EKG, it was 92% sensitive for a STEMI and had a 99.9% negative predictive value. So final thoughts, manage ACS early and aggressively, even in our older patients. Definitely assess what their goals of care are and whether aggressive treatment and fibrinolysis or PCI would be in line with their goals of care. But if it is, those older patients may be the ones who benefit even more from earlier PCI in STEMIs and in high-risk and STEMIs. I hope this will help you reframe how you think about older patients with ACS and help on your next shift not miss a patient who may be having a STEMI or an NSTEMI just because they lack chest pain. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dr. Shenvi. So happy to have you on EM Quick Hits. Beautifully summarized at the end there too. So let's just move on to our next quick hit. And this one is of our Rural EM series with Noor Khatib. Take it away, Dr. Khatib. If you're not driving and you can quickly access the NRP algorithm, I do recommend that you pull it up and watch the algorithm as she's going through this case. This was a once in a career kind of case if you live in the city. In more rural emergency departments or remote areas with no OB, it'll happen more often. 
In this specific rural emerge, we've had three deliveries in the last year. This EM quick hit will highlight every ED physician's worst nightmare case. All credit for this case goes to Dr. Christina McHenry, my colleague and friend, who is definitely what I call a BFP, badass female physician. She handled this beautifully and helped the department reflect on what needs to be changed in order for us to be prepared for our next delivery. Be sure to check out the original podcast, episode 142 NRP, with Dr. Hilary Wyatt, Dr. Jabin Fayaz, and Dr. Emily McNeil. Let's get started. First, check your own pulse because we're going to go on an adrenaline ride. A 37-year-old G5P4 female presents to the emergency department at 26 weeks gestation with abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, and she has only had one ultrasound, her first trimester ultrasound, with no blood work and no prenatal care done. Her past medical history consists of three previous C-sections. The last C-section was only 12 months ago. This rings alarm bells for possible uterine abruption. She's on methadone for Percocet addiction. The patient had three days of dark spotting, then heavier bleeding and contractions today. Guttural screams were heard from triage, and the patient was immediately brought in to the resuscitation bay. On examination, it was clear that the fetus was halfway out, and it was coming out breech. With two to three pushes, the baby was out. And now you have two patients to deal with. Take a deep breath. Note that this is a scary situation, but the only way to deal with it is one step at a time. Once you incrementalize your to-dos, they become more manageable. The goal is to have a warm, pink, and loud neonate. How you get there is to follow the steps of NRP box-by-box, step-by-step. Don't lose your cool. Everyone in the room is scared, and you can set the tone for this resuscitation. 90% of births are uncomplicated. The remaining 10% usually need a little stimulation and some oxygen and a small subset will require you to go down the NRP algorithm. In a 26 gestation birth, you're in that small subset. First step, preparation. Before the baby was born, your team is assembling the NRP gear. The Miller zeros and ones, the ET tubes that are small in size, a superglottic airway, oxygen mask that'll fit a neonate, bag mass ventilation, IOs, towels, your umbilical vein catheter kit, Scissors and a clamp. First, the cord was cut and clamped. At the time of birth, the APGAR score was one. Just one. The baby had no muscle tone. Pulse was below 100. That's the one point. The baby was flaccid, blue, with no respirations. So, let's go ahead and start NRP. Ask yourself three questions. Is the baby term? Is the baby having a good tone? Is the baby breathing or crying? If all is yes, position the airway, dry the infant, and place the infant on the mother's chest. Of course, in this case, it's not going to be that easy. If the answer is no to any of them, and in this case it was no to all of them, we know this is not going to be a simple resuscitation. The first step is to stimulate, position the airway, and warm the child. The neonate was taken to the warmer and dried. NRP suggests plastic bags for premature infants to prevent hypothermia, 
We're not allowed to towel dry babies that are less than 32 weeks of gestation as their skin is quite fragile. Newborns lose heat rapidly. The warmer needs to be set at 25 degrees. If you've got a plastic bag to put the premature neonate in, please do so. The target temperature is 36.5 to 37.5. Routine nasopharyngeal and oral suctioning is no longer recommended unless there is airway obstruction. So then you suction the mouth, then the nose. Think of it alphabetically, M before N. Stimulate the baby, rub the back, flick the soles of the feet. Position the infant, put rolls under the shoulders. Make sure you've got monitors on the baby. Put three leads for your ECG and make sure you've got the SpO2 monitor on. Palpating the umbilical cord can be helpful, but is often unreliable. Another option is just grab your dusty stethoscope and listen to the heartbeat. Next question. Is the baby apneic or gasping? Is the heart rate below 100? If the heart rate is above 100 and there's labored breathing, then suction, jaw thrust, give supplemental oxygen. If the heart rate is below 100, then you're still going to suction, jaw thrust, and give supplemental oxygen and consider starting PPV. Avoid overventilation. So your positive inspiratory pressure should only be between 20 to 25. You want to avoid a pneumothorax. And this is how you're going to give the breaths. It's breath, two, three, breath, two, three. This will ensure that you're going to give 40 to 60 breaths a minute. Start with an FiO2 of 21%, so just room air. Remember, it takes 10 minutes for a newborn with no issues to go to an O2 sat of 95%. At one minute, it could be as low as 60%. After 30 seconds of this, if the heart rate is still below 60 we'll have to move on to ventilation correction steps, or the Mr. SOPA mnemonic. Mr. SOPA stands for mask adjustment, reposition the airway, suctioning, opening the mouth, increasing the pressure, PEEP of 6 to 8, or a PIP of over 20. If the heart rate is still below 60, now you must consider an advanced airway, a supraglottic airway, or intubation. Keep in mind, though, the baby we have is a 26-week gestation. An SGA, a supraglottic airway, cannot be used in less than 34 weeks or less than 1.5 kilograms. There aren't ones that fit the size. This child was now intubated with a Miller Zero. Once the child is intubated, chest compressions start. Dial up your FiO2 to 100%. Start chest compressions. Administer compressions with a two-thumb technique with three-to-one coordination. So... This is how it goes. One and two and three and breathe. One and two and three and breathe. One and two and three and breathe. This will allow 120 beats per minute while giving adequate ventilation. Make sure that you're going a third of the chest diameter. Now, an umbilical vein catheter is the preferred route for IV access. You can also get an IO, but you can only get IOs for infants that are above three kilos, which usually are infants that are term. So in this case, there's no IO. My colleague, Dr. McHenry, put in an umbilical vein catheter and compressions were continued for another 60 seconds. If the heart rate is less than 60, despite all of the above, now we start epinephrine. You can give the epinephrine through the ET tube with a one milliliter syringe at a dose of one mil per kilo. You're giving it through the ET tube while you're waiting for the line to be inserted. Once you have that UPC line, you can give the cardiac epi at the dose of 0.1 mils per kilo. Remember, in the umbilical cord, 
The one large hole is your vein, and then there's the two small ones for the artery. You're aiming at the larger one. This neonate's heel prick glucose was 2.1. So what do I do about fluids and sugar? For fluids, you're going to give 10 mils per kilo over 20 minutes, and you can do that through your wonderfully inserted UVC line. And for glucose, you're going to give the D10W 2 mils per kilo. After 15 minutes of CPR and intubating this neonate, the heart rate was now 125. The baby was pink and was moving all four limbs. They were transported to a higher level of care center, and the baby was doing well in the NICU. This was a case of severe premature labor in a 26-week gestation female, where there was likely a uterine abruption involved given the history of past C-sections and vaginal bleeding. Our two patients were lucky to be in the care of an awesome team at this rural site. I spoke with Dr. McHenry about the case in detail, and her take-home points were, have an NRP poster on the wall of your resuscitation bay. It's a high-acuity case that you do not face very often. Also, trust your resuscitation skills. Even if you feel unprepared, realize that your recess instincts can help your patients. Remember to always incrementalize your steps. It all feels impossible until you take it, break it down, and have the courage to take baby steps. Always great to review NRP. You know, repetition is key for these HALO events. I think I'm going to go back to episode 142 show notes and review it myself. A few key things with NRP. These are generally respiratory resuscitations, so it's ABC, not CAB. Heat loss is a major issue. So in the teeny tiny premature babies, put them in a plastic bag up to their neck to keep them warm while they're wet, no towel drying. Superglottic airways are great for babies over 34 weeks gestational age and one and a half kilos because SGAs are in fact the preferred first line airway tool in NRP, but they're too big for under 34 weeks or 1.5 kilos so you're stuck having to intubate with a Miller Zero. And if you like IOs, that's great, but you can't use them for neonates under three kilograms. If you're having trouble getting an umbilical vein catheter, remember you can always give the epinephrine through the ET tube and deal with the catheter later for fluids and glucose. All right, next up we have our very own ECG cases, Dr. Jesse McLaren reviewing his latest blog post on how not to get fooled by ECG computer interpretation. But before we get to that, a message from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Here are some ways that Metricade can help your ED flow. You can tell what the time to assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. Some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four. If you want, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what everyone wants to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. The time between patient registration or triage and when you see the patient is shortened considerably, which is better for everyone. Visit metricade.com slash emcases for more details. ECG computer interpretation is a double-edged sword. When correct, it improves physician accuracy, but when incorrect, it increases error. 
misdiagnoses based on computer interpretation are estimated to account for up to 10,000 adverse effects or avoidable deaths every year. It's important to not only know what the computer gets wrong, but why, so that we can avoid making the same mistakes and enhance our own interpretation. So let's talk about 10 sources of computer error and how we can avoid them. The first set are errors from ECG acquisition. Like point-of-care ultrasound, we need a good quality ECG, which has been properly acquired, before we start interpreting. ECG acquisition can be affected by artifact, limb or precordial lead reversal, and lead misplacement. If not recognized by the computer and the provider, these can lead to a variety of misdiagnoses. But fortunately, these four problems leave telltale signs. The first is motion artifact, which can produce a chaotic baseline. This might be labeled as a fib or even polymorphic VTAC, but if you can see a lead which is unaffected or can map out regular R waves throughout the noise, it can give a clue that the underlying rhythm is normal. Second, limb lead reversal, which results in inverted complexes. This can produce pseudo-infarct pattern in the inferior or lateral leads, but clues include an inverted P wave in lead 1 or 2, which is the opposite of sinus rhythm, entirely inverted P QRST complexes, or an abnormal axis. Third is precordial lead reversal. This can give a pseudo-infarct pattern in the anterior leads, but the hint is the R-wave progression getting interrupted by an isolated abnormal lead. Fourth is precordial lead misplacement, especially placing V1 and V2 too high on the chest. This can mimic everything from ST elevation from Brugada or STEMI to T-wave inversion from Wellen syndrome or pulmonary embolism. But the giveaway are the P-waves. Normally, these are biphasic in V1 and fully upright in V2. But if V1 is fully negative, or V2 is biphasic or negative, they are too high. So before interpreting an ECG, we need to first make sure it has been properly acquired. This means it should be free from artifact, there should be normal limb lead placement with an upright P wave in leads 1 and 2, there should be normal precordial lead placement with a P wave that is biphasic in V1 and upright in V2, and a smooth R wave progression without isolated abnormalities. Once an ECG has been properly acquired, we then need to accurately interpret it. The second set of computer errors are from interpretation, or rather from measurement, because that's what the computer is actually doing. But there are common problems we can avoid. First of all, the rate and rhythm. Computers are generally accurate in labeling normal sinus rhythm, but have high rates of error when it comes to everything else. Because small deflections between QRS complexes can be P waves, T waves, U waves, flutter waves, or artifact. The best leads to verify sinus activity is lead 2, where P waves are upright, or V1, where P waves are biphasic. Second, electrical conduction. Computers are good at calculating intervals, but this is not always foolproof. For example, the short PR and delta waves in WPW may not be present in all the leads and could be missed, while prominent U waves can lead to errors in interpreting the QT interval. Third, the axis. Computers are good at determining the axis, but not always at specifying its cause, so we need to know our differentials for axis deviation. Fourth, R-wave progression. Computers don't seem to pay much attention to R-wave progression, but this can be very helpful at identifying lost R-waves from an anterior MI 
or early R waves from posterior MI. Fifth, overall voltage. Because it's a simple measurement, computers will often correctly label low voltage, but they often can't differentiate whether large voltages are from LVH or early repolarization, because these can have the same amplitude and rely on other features to distinguish. Finally, ST segments and T waves. Because computers can measure millimeters, they can apply basic STEMI criteria. The problem is that these criteria are neither sensitive nor specific. They can't differentiate between secondary, primary, or combination of ST elevation. So they might label LVH as STEMI while missing occlusion MI in the presence of a left bundle branch block. In addition, they can't identify other signs of occlusion MI which don't meet STEMI criteria like hypercute T waves or reciprocal change. In summary, to avoid these 10 sources of computer interpretation error, we just need to be systematic in our own interpretation, including rate and rhythm, electrical conduction, axis, R-wave progression, voltages, and ST-T-wave changes. This allows us to actually go beyond the computer by integrating multiple abnormalities, which is crucial to identify severe hyperkalemia, RV strain from a large PE, or acute coronary occlusion. So it's up to us to interpret the ECG, integrate the findings, and apply them in clinical context. So how should we make use of the computer interpretation? ECG expert Dr. Grauer suggests two different approaches depending on your skill. If you're an expert, you don't need the computer interpretation, but can verify its correct statements while correcting its errors. But for the learner, it's important to interpret the ECG before looking at what the computer says to avoid being misled by errors while incorporating what the computer gets right. For multiple examples of errors in ECG acquisition and computer interpretation, visit the ECG Cases blog and EM Cases and see if you can outwit the computer. We spend a lot of time on hemophilia in medical school, but you may work at a center where you don't see it too frequently. The problem with hemophilia is it's high risk and more than likely we're going to see a patient with hemophilia at some point in our career. So we have to know how to care for these patients. In this quick hits episode, I'm going to cover some key points about the pathophysiology and evaluation in the ED. The second quick hits will look at treatment. Let's start with some basics. Hemophilia is a bleeding disorder where there's a deficiency in one of the factors involved in the coagulation pathway. All this means is that patients have trouble with forming a normal fibrin clot. The most common forms are hemophilia A and B. Hemophilia A is a deficiency in factor 8. Hemophilia B is a deficiency in factor 9. Now there's also hemophilia C, which is a deficiency in factor 11. The severity is based on the amount of available factors, or the factor level. The less available factor in the patient's circulation, the more severe the disease. Severe hemophilia is when there's less than 1% factor available. Moderate hemophilia is a factor level between 1-5%. to Finally, mild hemophilia is a factor level between 5-40%. to The final major consideration is females. In the past, we've thought of females as asymptomatic carriers, but that's not the case. Females who carry the gene for hemophilia can have low factor levels and they're actually at risk of bleeding complications. We now use the term of female with mild or moderate or severe hemophilia 
which depends on the active factor level. Now, most patients with hemophilia that we're going to see in the ED have a known diagnosis. They're extremely knowledgeable about their disease. But we can see patients with their first episode of bleeding, and if that patient has mild hemophilia, they might go undiagnosed for years. Patients with severe hemophilia will have their first episode of bleeding within the first two years of life. This might be intracranial or extracranial hemorrhage, post-circumcision bleeding, heel stick bleeds, and oral mucosal bleeding. In patients who are older than six months, hemarthrosis is by far the most common site of bleeding. We need to think about hemophilia in pediatric patients with hemarthrosis, post-circumcision bleeding, excessive or prolonged bleeding after small cuts and lacerations, and also bruises that are larger than what you would expect for the mechanism. Let's talk about how most of these patients will present. Patients can come to the ED with spontaneous bleeding or complications from bleeding that we may not immediately see, or they may come in with complications from factor infusion. We categorize bleeding episodes as major and minor. Major bleeds include the CNS, the airway, the eyes, nose, chest, GI tract, and finally the retroperitoneum. A good way to think about a major bleed is bleeding in some enclosed space that could cause a lot of damage or bleeding that could kill the patient. Minor bleeds involve the oral mucosa, joints, and the muscles, but if a bleed affects the joint or muscles and it causes neurovascular compromise, that's a major bleed. Overall, hemarthrosis is the most common site of bleeding. The most dangerous site, though, is intracranial bleeding. This is the leading cause of death in patients with hemophilia. Now, patients can also present with bruising, mucosal bleeding, persistent menstrual bleeding, or persistent bleeding after minor trauma. If you have an adult who comes in, they have no known diagnosis, but they have spontaneous bruising, mucosal bleeding, hematomas, subacutes or delayed postpartum bleeding, or any other unexplained bleeding, you need to think about hemophilia. If they have a known diagnosis, we need to ask about the type of hemophilia, severity, prophylaxis and last factor replacement, prior bleeds, inhibitors, HIV and hepatitis C status, their emergency management plan, and if they have home factor with them. The show notes will have a complete list of these. Exam can be normal early in the bleeding episode, but we need to be thorough. For the ED evaluation, labs should never delay factor replacement if you suspect severe bleeding based on your history. At some point, you should obtain a CBC, coagulation profile, and factor activity level, but again, don't delay treatment. The classic lab findings are a prolonged APTT, but the PT, the bleeding time, and the platelet count should all be normal. We also need to have a low threshold for imaging, but again, this should never delay our treatment. Keep in mind that all of our amazing clinical decision rules and guidelines like PCARN, the Canadian CT head injury and trauma rule, and the Ottawa knee and ankle rules do not apply to these patients. All right, so that's enough for today. Remember, hemophilia is a bleeding disorder due to a deficiency in coagulation factor 8, which is hemophilia A, or factor 9, which is hemophilia B. Bleeding is broken into major and minor bleeds. The most common site of bleeding is hemarthrosis, but bleeding in the CNS is a leading cause of death. Stay tuned for part 2, where we dive into treatment and some other considerations. 
Great review. Thank you, Dr. Long. The key take-home point there is that you should give factor before your PTT and your imaging get back in any patient with a suspected life-threatening bleed. How do you give factor? Not so simple. We'll find out in next month's EM Quick Hits number 39. All right, last but not least, we have Dr. Maria Ivankovic, and this one is from the last EM Cases Summit in November 2021, and she's going to talk about something that we encounter not so infrequently and where it's kind of unclear exactly what the evidence is and we're not exactly quite sure what to do with, and that is intractable hiccups. Once in a while, I see a patient presenting to the emergency department complaining of hiccups for many hours or days. Now, hiccups are incredibly annoying and can significantly impact a patient's quality of life, ability to eat, sleep, and socially interact. Now, did you know the Guinness record for the longest period of hiccuping is almost 70 years? I can't even imagine. Now, in the ED, it can be challenging to decide how much to investigate a patient with hiccups and what treatments to try. I've always wondered if there's any good evidence to guide us. Now, let's start by clarifying a couple of definitions. An acute attack of hiccups is anything less than two days. Hiccups more than two days are termed persistent and hiccups more than one month are called intractable. Now, in order to understand what can cause hiccups and how some of the treatments might work, it's important to have a bit of an understanding of how hiccups are triggered. Now, there are over 100 causes of hiccups in the literature. The most common benign cause, of course, is distension of the stomach after a large meal or carbonated drinks or swallowing a lot of air. The reflex can also be triggered by spicy foods, alcohol, smoking, or other things that irritate the GI or respiratory tracts. Now, for intractable hiccups, you have to consider anything that might be triggering the path of the reflex arc, whether it's from irritation, compression, or interaction with the neurotransmitters. Now, CNS causes like stroke, brain tumors, and trauma are less common, and fortunately don't usually present with isolated hiccups, but definitely need to be on your differential. Now, GI causes are amongst the most common triggers um, and are usually secondary to reflux or a large hiatus hernia. Cardiovascular disease such as ACS, pericarditis, and aortic aneurysms have also been associated with hiccups. And how's that, you might be wondering? Uh, well, remember the phrenic nerve travels behind the heart and it provides sensory innervation to the pericardium and nearby structures. And ENT conditions can also affect the reflex arc, uh, whether it's an enlarged lymph node in the neck, uh, the thyroid gland, or even foreign bodies in the ear. Now, other causes linked to hiccups through effects on neurofunction include electrolyte imbalances, uremia, plus a bunch of toxins and recreational drugs. Medications include benzodiazepines, opiates, steroids, dopamine agonists, and some chemotherapeutics. Now, psychogenic causes, of course, are also possible, but should be a diagnosis of exclusion, especially if hiccups persist during sleep. So what's a good approach in the ED? The physical exam should include the ears, nose, neck, and throat, plus a full respiratory, abdominal, and neurological exam. I know, it's a lot. While patients with hiccups lasting more than two days should get some investigations in the ED, as it may be the first sign of serious disease. 
Now do some basic labs, check electrolytes, LFTs for pathology, irritating the diaphragm, and renal function. And depending on the patient, you may consider a troponin, EKG, and chest x-ray. Now patients need close follow-up and further investigations if no cause is found on initial testing in the ED. Now further workup doesn't necessarily have to happen in the ED, uh, but should include a CT of the head, neck, chest, abdomen, all to rule out pathology along the course of the vagus and phrenic nerves. If those investigations don't fi find a cause, then patients should be referred for gastroscopy. So let's talk about treatment. There are a lot of folk remedies and physical maneuvers out there. And even though they, are, they have poor evidence, um, they may be worth a try, particularly vagal maneuvers. Now, these are more for acute attacks rather than prolonged hiccups. So I won't talk about those now. Now, whenever possible, the treatment of hiccups should be directed at the underlying cause. Otherwise, there are a few meds you can try. There is no high quality data on which to base treatment recommendations. For a long time, chlorpromazine was first line based on old series from the 1950s, um, but it is no longer recommended first line um, due to significant long-term neurological and other side effects and because there are safer options. So based on the very limited efficacy and safety data that we do have, metoclopramide, baclofen, and gabapentin are the only effective agents, I should say, that were studied in a prospective manner, uh, while only metoclopramide and baclofen have been studied in RCTs. Metoclopramide acts centrally as a dopamine antagonist and peripherally by increasing gastric motility, and it can be prescribed 10 milligrams three times a day. Baclofen decreases neuroexcitation and induces muscle relaxation and can also be prescribed 10 milligrams three times a day. Gabapentin, which is structurally similar to GABA, decreases neuroexcitation and can be prescribed 300 milligrams three times a day. Pregabalin actually might become a newer effective alternative. Now, it's important to keep in mind that baclofen and gabapentin can cause dizziness and sedation, and metoclopramide can cause dystonia. So depending on the patient's age, comorbidities, and other meds, I usually start with metoclopramide, 10 milligrams TID, and um, have added baclofen in combination if needed as well. So to wrap up, persistent hiccups may be the first sign of serious pathology, it's important to take a detailed approach in the ED, including labs and imaging, particularly if the patient's had hiccups for more than two days. When possible, the treatments should focus on the cause. Otherwise, consider a trial of metoclopramide, baclofen, or gabapentin. Let's summarize the key take-home points from this EM Quick Hits. Number one, ACS diagnosis and treatment is delayed in older patients. Getting those ECGs early, scrutinizing the ECG even more because they can often be subtle, advocate to get these patients to PCI who fulfill the criteria fast because the benefit they get from PCI is likely to be greater than if they were younger. A rural quick hit with Noor Khatib reviewed NRP in a preemie. A few pearls here. In the less than 1.5 kilograms or 34-week preemie, Warm them in a plastic bag instead of towel drying them. Use a Miller Zero ET tube instead of a superglottic airway that you'd use in bigger neonates. And remember that normally it takes a few minutes for their O2 sat to come up to 90 after birth. So don't jump to intubate a neonate who's satting 70% in the first minute of life. Under three kilograms, you should place an umbilical vein catheter 
over three kilograms, go for an IO if you're more familiar with IOs. And remember that you can give epi down the ET tube if necessary, if you don't have vascular access. Jesse McLaren took us through his top 10 issues with ECG computer interpretation and drove home the point that if you're early in your EM training, it's important to go through your ECG approach before looking at the ECG interpretation. And if you're an expert at ECG interpretation, use the interpretation just as verification of your interpretation or at least to encourage you to recheck your interpretation. Britt Long covered part one of his two-part quick hit series on hemophilia. PTT is prolonged in hemophilia, but none of the other coagulation parameters. Give factor before your PTT gets back and before imaging in patients who you suspect have life-threatening bleeds. And finally, for the patient who presents with first-time intractable hiccups, you need to do a thorough assessment looking for an underlying ENT, GI, RESP, or neuro cause or medication cause. And if there was one go-to medication, that medication would be metoclopramide 10 milligrams TID. All right, if you haven't had a chance to subscribe to the EM Cases email blast just for Nuggets and Pearl of the Week yet, they are all foam gold. Just hit the red button on the EM Cases website that says newsletter sign up. It'll get you that much closer to the giant joys and brain-expanding goodness of multimodal spaced repetition. And with that, until next time, Take it easy.